It's April 1988 in Washington, D.C. A Senate subcommittee has convened to talk about the growing threat of organized crime, specifically the mafia, or La Cosa Nostra, in Ohio. These hearings, I believe, are exposing the changing face of organized crime. We're facing a new generation which differs significantly from its predecessors, terrorizing citizens, draining our economy, in many cases taking over legitimate businesses. This meeting is special. Between the packed gallery and the long dais where senators sit in anticipation, a screen has been set up to conceal the identity of a witness, the highest-ranking mob boss to ever testify about the mafia. Mr. Leonardo, why don't you proceed? My name is Angelo Leonardo, and I am a member of the La Costa Nostra. I was a former underboss of the Cleveland Organized Crime Family. Big Ange, as he's known, is the last of the old guard of the Cleveland Mafia. Over the past 10 years since it warred with Pittsburgh and Youngstown, the Cleveland crew has been decimated by arrests and murders. I was just looking at this uh, summary sheet here on the chronology of violence. 35 people were murdered in the Cleveland area. The decline of the Cleveland mob had started in 1977 with the high-profile bombing of Irish mob boss Danny Green, a killing that was executed by a guy from Youngstown, Ronnie Carabia. Ronnie Carabia and the others are charged with conspiring to control organized crime in Northeast Ohio through murder and bribery. Ronnie had been running the Youngstown rackets for Cleveland with his brothers, Charlie and Orley. Now he was going away for good. Convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment for the bombing of Danny Green. With Ronnie out of the picture, the Pittsburgh mob moved in on Cleveland's turf, sparking the war you heard about in episode three the latest Mahoning Valley War, with nine dead and two unaccounted for in the last three years. The Cleveland Mafia was decimated. Most of its leaders had been killed or thrown in jail. Then the feds came for Big Ange Leonardo, and he did something mob bosses rarely do. He took a deal, a lighter sentence in exchange for talking about the mob. And all of that led to this hearing in 1988. Mr. Leonardo, you are prepared to testify. Yes. You have sworn to tell the subcommittee the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's right. He's here to talk about the vacuum that was left when the old bosses were killed or locked up, and to offer a warning of things to come, of a new generation of mobsters who weren't going to play by the same rules. You said that these younger members lacked the discipline and respect that made this thing as strong as it once was. Respect for what? Well, years ago, you tell them, you can't do this, you can't do that. They would listen. They don't take orders like they used to. We're facing a new generation of the LCN. They lack respect for tradition and for the family. The reputed mob kingpin found dead in the driveway, shot twice. They've succumbed to the influence of drugs, both as traffickers and as users. Fueled by the underworld, the drug underground spun off. What authorities call the biggest cocaine conspiracy in Ohio. As a result, they've become more greedy. Underworld interests take in billions of dollars annually. 
that become more selfish. Warring factions waged a bloody and gruesome battle that become more violent. Two men shot in the head burned beyond recognition. Uh, the judge was shot two slugs entered his chest area. The attempted murder of Mahoning County prosecutor. What federal agents call a gangland hit. These younger members, they don't take orders like they used to. They go ahead and do things uh, on their own. It was an alarming statement for a mob boss to make that the mob was out of control. I'm Mark Smerling. Welcome to Crooked City. There was an organized crime war going on. Jack Tobin was gunned down here. John Magda was found bound by duct tape. They got to the point that uh, we had to take down Joe DeRose. We had to get him. There was no trace of DeRose or human remains in the car or nearby woods. It was an interesting time because I'd wake up and go to work and I'd turn the radio on and the news and every week or two somebody else was killed. <laughs> Chapter 6, The Younger Guys. I remember when I was young, I was always a fighter. I used to fight three, four times a week, like it was nothing, okay? And I've been in a few knife fights, many. I got stabbed 13 times. Straight in the head, the cheek, chest, tendon, arm. This is very sensitive. If I touch it real light, like that, it stings from the blade turning into it. So that's how it was back then. We didn't sit in the house playing video games. We'd like to fight. This is Frankie Suzanne. Hi, everybody. My name is Frankie. Grew up in the Youngstown area my whole life. I'm going to tell you how it really was. How would you describe yourself? All American with a crooked side. <laughs> Nobody is born crooked. Frankie wasn't either. Growing up, his dad worked at a steel mill in Youngstown. His mom was a nurse. Perfect middle class neighborhood, little league, you know, plenty of kids playing on the street, you know. By the early 80s, when Frankie was in high school, he was hanging out with a rough crowd of troublemakers. And we hung out at Wedgwood Bowling Alley, Wedgwood Pizza, and Wedgwood Park. <laughs> the cops said, we pull and they run like rats. And so it just stuck. Wedgwood rats. We're pretty much just clean-cut kids, never did drugs, and we liked to drink, steal, gamble, uh, fight. And there were other gangs. Oh, we used to fight the blacks from the north side. The Catholic kids from Cardinal Mooney. We got in a lot of fights, I will say that, a lot of fights. The Wedgwood Rats developed a violent reputation in the community and attracted the attention of the sheriff of Mahoning County at the time. Trafficking used to come around. He'd have town hall meetings about us. I think one of them was like 600 people. Say, so I'm gonna get rid of them, I'm gonna get rid of the rats, I'm gonna get rid of the rats. Then they'd come in like a bar we hung out. And him, he'd come there and hang out and say he's carding. These are basically inspections, looking for any possible sales to minors or juveniles that might be on the premises. 
yeah, we patrolled Wedgewood. We got these guys under control. You know, what are you going to do? You were kids. It was around that time that Frankie graduated from street fighting to a hobby that would become his lifelong career. That's when we started stealing things. We'd break in this place, that place, you know. Why is stealing so fun? Break in a place, you'll find out. <laughs> By the time he was 18, Frankie had graduated to high-end burglaries, luxury items like suits and electronics. And to get cash, he needed to sell them. There were several places we'd take him to. Any bar back then would write numbers and have stolen property. And not any bar, but a lot, right? So we knew different places to take stuff. Started meeting people over there, guys that were so-called connected. Burglars and thieves who did jobs for the mob. By that time, the Wedgwood rats were in the papers so much, these guys had heard about Frankie and his friends. Guys are like, oh, you guys, are the, you're one of them Wedgwood guys, this and that, so they'd get a kick out of meeting us. So like, boy, I, we pictured you like big and mean and ugly looking, you know. And were these guys affiliated with any organization? Yeah, Center Street. That was Joey's vending company at the corner of Center and Wilson Avenue. This was the scene as Eyewitness News exclusively captured the FBI raid here at the headquarters of Rackets figure Joey Naples. Center Street was shorthand for Youngstown United Music, a vending machine company owned and operated by Joey Naples of the Pittsburgh faction. Three carloads of agents hit Naples United Music Company on Wilson Avenue, what is believed to be the local arm of a nationwide stolen jewelry ring. United Music had become the focus of FBI attention and the target of an occasional raid in part because of the man who owned it. Naples, the crime boss, dressed in a leisure suit, nervously paced the sidewalk. Naples learned his trade under the old guard. He cut his teeth in the mob war of the late 70s, and after a couple of prison stints, he'd learned how to keep his hands clean. I didn't see him commit any crimes. He had a group of guys out there. He was a business guy. Naples answered only to the boss, Jimmy Prado. But at the time, everyone referred to Prado as the old man. Prado was like semi-retired. Joey was really the one running everything. Every day at 3.30, the politicians and the contractors, everyone lined up at United Music. They'd be sitting there waiting for their turn. Talk to Joey. Need a short-term loan with no credit? Joey had you with interest. Trying to get re-elected to city council? Joey's your man. He was the center, so if you wanted your place burned for insurance, you know you could go down there. If you wanted something stolen, well, that was Joey said, hey, go talk to so-and-so. And sometimes that so-and-so was Frankie and his friends. You know, theft was our thing, or maybe arson here or there, or, you know, planting a bomb somewhere, that type of stuff. In return, Naples and his guys put Frankie onto scores. The older guys started telling us places that they couldn't do because they were too old and slow. When I was 18, 19, if you were a cop, you weren't going to catch me. We used to go out and steal jewelry. That was always our thing. So I'd bring the jewelry down there. They said, holy shit, these guys are like all the time. They're like more than us. Frankie's scores were getting bigger and bigger. He was becoming an all-star in Joey's organization. So much so that he earned a nickname. I would do pranks, you know, stuff like that. We always played jokes, you know. They used to call me the kid. I was the kid.
you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. As a young thief, Frankie Susani was making a lot of money stealing with the guys from Joey Naples' crew. The days of robbing mom-and-pop stores were over. By the 80s, big box stores were popping up everywhere. Huge warehouses full of merchandise that did hundreds of thousands of dollars in business every week. To break into those, it helped to be young and a little crazy. We did a whole bunch of these Sam's Clubs. I remember the first one I did, me and my young buddies did it. We beat the brand new Sam's Club on board, but we made like 150000 cash. They were all excited and everything, right? And uh, they said, let's do the one in Canton. I'm like, all right, let's do it tonight. And I go, okay. <laughs> so it's like that quick. I'm ready. We went there, beat the alarm, broke in. We just opened the safe with the jewelry, threw it in a bag. And I remember I said, you want to go open the money safe? And then my buddy come on the radio and said, hey, there's two cars pulling in the front. I said, all right, just let me know what they do. About 30 seconds later, he says, hey, there's two cars coming in from the side entrance. You guys better get out of there. We started trot to the back. And as we're trotting, he's like, hey, more are coming in, more are coming in. By the time we opened the back door, I pushed the back door open. Boom. And I pulled the door shut. And I said, hey, that's the FBI out there. They said, are you sure? Sure, I'm positive. So I get on the radio and I says, hey, FBI are back there. Can we go out the side? He goes, nah, they got on the side too. I go, how about out the front? He goes, no, they're in the front too. I said, well, how many of them are there out there? He come back on, he counted the cars and there were something like... 26 cars or something like that. So I said, oh man, if you're at least two in a car, that's going to be like 50 agents. I have good nerves. I don't get nerves. I don't, you know. And uh, I knew the gig was up. I said, uh, well, how about if we just run out the door? We're in our 20s. Why don't we just run out the door? They're like, okay, that sounds good. Maybe one of us will get away. Maybe all three of us. Let's just run and scatter when we run out. Don't run together. We'll scatter. Like, okay, okay. So we go by, we pick a door on the side. I said, okay, three. One, two, boom, they ran. 
and I see them go out there and I seen about 14 ages with shotguns and pistols yelling at them, freeze, freeze. I was flat-footed. I was completely flat-footed. I wasn't ready at all. So I leaned back like this and I let the door close on its own. I didn't pull it. I just let it close real slow. Alone in the Sam's Club, Frankie radioed his lookout. I go, they got him. They got him. I watched him. I'm going to the other side. Tell me when it's clear. So I went to the other side, and the agents would never leave that side. I said, what about the back? What about the front? He's like, nope. Like two hours I've been in there by myself. By this time, it's going on like one in the morning. Then they brought dogs out. I'm like, all right, well, listen, I'm going to hide in here. I'm turning the radio off so they don't hear it. So you might as well go ahead and leave. He's like, all right, call me on payphone. I'll come and pick you up if you get out of there. I climbed up one of the racks, so I was way up there. And I moved some boxes, made like a cubby hole, and I laid in there. So they were in there looking for me, saying my name, saying, Susanne, come on out, Frankie. So I fell asleep like two or three times. I dozed off and fell asleep, a dead sound of sleep. I'd wake up and like, where am I? And I could see these big lights, and I remember, like, oh. And I'd hear them. It had to be 4.30 in the morning. They were shutting the lights out. They were leaving. The head guy was in the back, kind of, and he said, hey, did anybody check inside the coolers or on top of the coolers? And this guy's yelling, yeah, I checked the one on the left, but not the right. And then there's one guy up front He's yelling, I checked them both, and I checked on top. The agent's saying, well, somebody check on top. And this one up front's yelling, I already checked on top of both of them. Let's go. He doesn't hear them. So a guy goes up there, and he goes, hey, I can see pretty good up here. He goes, turn the lights back on. They turn the lights back on. So he's looking, he's looking. He goes, I think I see him. I'm thinking, oh, man, I don't know if if it's me or not. So I'm sitting real still. And he directed him right to me. I had to stand up. They made me strip naked, throw all my clothes and everything off. So I come down completely naked, stark naked. I climbed down the ladder. There they handcuffed me on the floor. And they had the dog barking in my face for a while. Then they took me outside, put me in a puddle of water. It was like October 25th or something. Sat me there for 20 minutes. So they threw me in a police car, took me to the police station. They put me in like the coffee break room. And uh, I remember a cop kept coming in there and they get coffee. This one goes, I'm sick of this shit. I'm tired of looking at your dick. And he cut holes in a garbage bag and put it over me. That's how I went to the county jail, like that. Eventually, Frankie did time for the Sam's Club heist. But with a little help from Joey Naples and his friends at Youngstown United Music, he made bail and was back on the street. It wouldn't be long before he'd get into trouble again, but this time, it would almost cost him his life. Because when I was out on bond, that's when I got stabbed. That's when Badger stabbed me.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Does my voice or the way I, I, I bring myself, does it put you to sleep or anything bad? No, Am you I, sound great, Sure. Actually. Do you have, like, a card or something, like, shut up, Mark, and let me get a word? Because I had a big <laughs> cup of coffee this morning. I'm sorry. Oh, me too. Well, this is Mark. My name is Mark Anthony Bacho. I'm in the Trumbull Correctional Institution. My inmate number is, sorry, hashtag small a. For 20 years, Mark has called this prison just outside of Youngstown his home. It's horrible. Men shouldn't be in these cages. Can you get me off early? <laughs> just kidding. Whenever you're ready. What put Bacho here is a long, winding story. To understand who he is and how he came to shape the fate of the mob in Youngstown, there's nowhere to start but the beginning. Can you just tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were growing up in Youngstown? Oh, it was the best. It was the perfect life. My mother and my grandma loved me so much, and I pretty much made a mess of my life, but the love I had then. When the good Lord takes me home, somebody would want my brain, but I think that they should take a look at it because getting hit in the head, it really left a mark on me. Do you remember any any really bad instances? Well, the first time was probably in second grade, so that would be 1973. I was a little fella, and uh, my mom and my dad were in a small uh, apartment kitchen. And I told my dad the new word that I learned at school from another kid. I guess it was a bad word. My dad hit me with a punch. The next thing I remember was seeing stars. And uh, my mom, God bless her, she took the butcher knife to my dad and said, you ever hit take a boy like that again, I'll kill you, John. My dad left us in 1974, and uh, my grandmother took me and my mom in, no questions asked. She just took us in and that was it, we were a family. My dad, he left me with two things when he abandoned us. He left me with a Doritos taco flavored tortilla chips, brand new bag, unopened, and a Tom Jones Live at Caesars Palace 8-track tape. And on the cover was Tom Jones laying on a chase lounge in a toga with eight beautiful women around him. And I said, I wonder what my dad's trying to teach me. I don't know. I plug in the 8-track tape. All you heard was, she's a lady. Oh, she's a lady. And I started dancing. And I opened up the bag of Dorito taco flavored tortilla chips and I started eating. I was like, huh. Dad's giving me a message. What is it? He's telling me, be a player, son. By the time he hit high school, Bacho was a player. He played sports and he chased girls. And he always seemed to get in scrapes with other guys trying to prove themselves. As far as the beatings I got, oh boy, I got no ability to duck punches. If you want to fight me, come on. I'm going to eat every single one of your punches. The next thing I know, I was laying on the ground seeing stars again. 
All my best war stories are the losses I've taken. You know, I've been knocked unconscious before I get back up, but that's neither here nor there. Bacho got better at fighting back, and he got bigger and bigger. Eventually, I went from being bullied to being the bully, to being the bully of bullies. In the prison meeting room today, he's a hulking presence with hands like baseball mitts, intimidating. No one wanted to cross me, especially if they knew that I was after him. I had a look. It's a glint in your eye that when they see it, it's too late. Bacho's size and aggression made him a natural football player, so he tried out for the team. As a sophomore, you're a meatball, so you're expected to go up against the seniors. You had to lead with the head or take him out at the legs. Every day, boom, boom, boom. And they laid in you. When you're hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting with the helmet on, you could feel it. With all the head injuries he sustained, Bacho started to feel different. Like I can go from zero to 60 in the anger issue, and I was never like that. I was always a sweet kid. Why I said I made a mess of my life is my senior year, we went to a party, and a guy that used to uh, go to Mooney's seven years older than me, he ran the bar. I was still 17 years old at the time, and we're going toward the, the restroom, and there's a the boss's office. Knock on the door, and the door opened, and there's this nice big mirror, and there's lines of cocaine on it. And hey, for a chance to party, how much does it cost? Five dollars. That's it. Boy, I was happy. Talkative, sociable. Whatever it fired in my brain, I liked it. You have so many head injuries, the concussions and stuff. And the only thing that ever, ever seemed to help me was the cocaine. You know, of course, it led to other bad behavior, but if there was something to, to make me happy, that was it. And I've been messed up on that or things like that ever since. Bacho barely finished high school. He tried joining the Marines, thinking that would straighten him out, but he got caught with cocaine and was discharged. Back at home, he couldn't shake the hold the drugs had on him. My girlfriend, then fiancé, then wife, half Irish, half Swedish, the most beautiful girl you could ever meet. You know, the first love of my life. I loved her so much, but I couldn't shake the alcohol and the drugs. I was out for a couple of days, and I come back to our apartment, and my wife is not there. I figure out she's with her girlfriend at a place called the Big Shot Saloon. I go there just on the chance that her and her girlfriend's there. I go up there. Somebody else was at the Big Shot that night, Frankie Susani, out on bond after his arrest at Sam's Club. And as usual, Frankie was talking to a girl. The girl that was a waitress at another place I used to go to, and I, I really didn't even know her name. I just knew she worked there. So I'd buy him some drinks and stuff, and barely would he talk to him. And that's when Mark Bacho walks in. My wife, she's there, drunk. Some guy who I don't know is in between them. I tap her on the shoulder. She comes over. I says, listen, we're out of here. I heard this guy yelling. 
at the girl. He's going to kill her. Who's this guy she's talking to, this and that. Looked like a Marine that wasn't in shape. He's husky, kind of tall. And I says, hey, hey, your girlfriend's not doing anything wrong. She's been standing here, right here, talking to us the whole night. Here, it was me he was talking about. The guy comes up. I don't know who the hell he is. I says, sorry, this is not your fault. This is my fault. This is my wife. I'm taking her with me. I says, please leave us alone. I used to barroom fight two or three times a week. It was no big deal. Lots of times I challenge guys to go behind places because then it takes a lot of courage to fight behind a place because then you got to fight till somebody gives up. That kind of separates people. He's making a scene, so I told him, let's go outside. He stood in the road and took his shirt off, kind of making a scene. I tell him, come on, come on. I don't know where my wife's at. She's back in the bar, drunk, probably with someone else. And then he kind of really didn't want to fight. He stood in the road. His buddies come up to me and says, hey, we're going to get him out of here, but you know, don't, don't do anything to him. We're going to just grab him and take him. I go, I don't care. He's just drunk. I'm going back in. So I tell Frankie Susani, I said, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. Me and my wife, we split up. I don't see her. I don't see him. I'm in the Splendid Restaurant on South Avenue, trying to get a gyro at about 2 o'clock in the morning when all the uh, bars had closed. And everyone's in there. You got Youngstown Police Department sitting there having their breakfast. You got every type of a hoodlum imaginable in it. Whatever you needed was there to have a, a wonderful evening. And I've been about three days up on the cocaine. And I'm just sitting there having this gyro. And I hear the waitress say, Frankie. I don't even remember this guy. And he goes downstairs to this really horrible, disgusting bathroom. I asked the waitress, I says, uh, who's that? She says, oh, that's Frankie. She says, Annie, he's big time. And I go out to the car, I get my Jim Bowie knife, I go down the stairs. I was walking downstairs and I heard a voice that, hey, Frank, how you doing? And I turned and I saw like knees and a waist and said, Hey, how's it going? I go up to the urinal and I'm just unzipping my thing and I feel something grab me on this arm. I come up behind him, I start stabbing him in the face with the Jim Bowie knife. I pulled like this, more or less trying to get control of the knife. Cut my tendons, the wrist, and the head three times. I give him about, I think, 22 times. Blood on the light bulb, blood everywhere, covered. I put the knife in his hand. I go upstairs to the splendid uh, main dining area. I call my friend, the Irish killer, and I said, come down to splendid. I think I just killed someone. I was full of blood, and a waitress came down into the men's restroom and saw me, and she starts screaming. So I'm standing outside the splendid. So I'm waiting for him to crawl up them steps. I'm gonna finish him on South Avenue under the eyes of God, and this will be done because it's a matter of honor. I don't know, I'm so out of it. I got blood from my fingertips and my elbows on both the things. Then YPD got wise. And his cop's looking at me, I'm looking at him. He says, come here. To escort me down to the basement where you're still trying to treat Suzanne. So they're like, hey, is this the guy it stabbed you up. And through one eye, he goes, that's him.
That night, Frankie went to the hospital with a dozen stab wounds. He went into emergency surgery, but he had no idea who stabbed him or why until someone told him the next day. Mark Bacho. Well, this is the guy who did it. I said, I don't know. I don't recognize that name. I have no idea who this person is. It took like 24 hours or so till people sent me word, hey, that's the guy from that night. So now I'm like, that guy's going to stab me over that? You know, this guy's crazy, you know? I'm arrested, taking the city jail, a zoo. All the mafia cops are there. It was a rough go of it because they already got the call that Joey's number one uh, guy got chopped up at the Splendid. Bacho made bail. But on the outside, he could have worse things to contend with than crooked cops. He'd almost killed an up-and-coming guy in Joey Naples' crew, and they wouldn't take that lightly. My dad came out of the woodwork from years of not talking to him, you know, hard feelings and stuff. And he's going to use his mafia ties to save me. Bacho's dad pulls some strings and gets him a sit-down with Joey Naples himself at the Guess Who restaurant and lounge. He doesn't show up. He sends the scariest human in Youngstown, Ohio, or America. Mr. Leo Conley, Jr. His nickname was The Gorilla. He was top-heavy like a prisoner that's been working out. And he hits me on the shoulder, about knocks me off the bar stool. He says, you come with me. He once caught Jeff Mance beating up Paul Pinto Hall of Addicts' daughter outside the Moonraker. He just came up. He patted him on the shoulder and snapped his arm right there. Two places, one hand, like that, the gorilla. Scariest human I've ever been up against. So we go from the bar side to the restaurant side. The restaurant was closed, so it's just me and him across from the booth. He says, why am I here? I said, the truth is, I got a problem. It's alcohol and drugs. I never cheated on my wife in my life. I says, I catch her up at the bar with Frankie Suzanne. It's not my girlfriend. It's not my fiance. It's my wife. He was very wise, very understanding. He says, listen, we have rules, and he should have never, ever been with your wife. You two will settle it. We're out of this. I said, well, thank you. We sure can. Bacho wasn't going to get whacked, and that was a good thing but he still had to face down a charge of attempted murder in court. Frankie Susani identified me to the Youngstown Police Department. Frankie Susani works for Joey Naples. And don't they have some sort of code against that? The omerta, the vile silence, come on. He's already told once, he's already fingered me to the YPD. Now what is going to happen? When they brought me out, I could see Mark's face. He was worried. He put his head down like, oh, like, like he was saying a prayer or something. And he says, you know, this is the victim. He fought with the attacker. He can identify him. Jay starts swearing me in. I stopped in the middle, and I said, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do this. So the judge ordered me to. And I says, no. 
And he says, why not? And I says, because Frank Susanne, he doesn't talk. And he kind of like just banged the gavel and said, case dismissed. And that's when Mark dropped his head like, whoa. And that was it. When you um, choose not to testify against him, how did that come about? Why'd you do that? I just didn't want to do it. I was going to take it in my own hands. Street justice. On the next episode of Crooked City, Sheriff Jim Trafkin makes a run for Congress. But I honestly believe that there's a lot to be done for this valley that was the number one center of the United States for unemployment. But can he put his past behind him? It is now on the record that you took bribes. No, you it's took not. mob money. That's next week on Crooked City. Crooked City is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. The show is produced by Catherine Sullivan, Olivia Briley, Zach St. Louis, and Alexa Burke. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Ryan Swikert. Kevin Shepard is our associate producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Johnny Cecatelli, our local producer in Youngstown. Fact-checking by Donia Suleiman. George Draving Hicks did the mix. Sound design by George Draving Hicks and Ryan Swiker. Music by Kenny Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Hurricane Heart Attack by The Warlocks. Continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Crooked City Pod. If you've enjoyed Crooked City, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It really helps others find the show. And thanks for listening. <laughs>